Welcome to Park Ave Baptist Church Podcast. A weekly broadcast of our Sunday sermon. I'm Himra Chanel, pastor of community engagement and stewardship. And I'm Darcy Jarrett, pastor of worship, advocacy, and arts. Park Ave is a bold, inclusive, and creative community where everyone is welcome. We uplift voices and identities that are marginalized elsewhere. We affirm all ethnicities, racial identities, ages, socioeconomic groups, gender identities, and sexual orientations. Because we hold to a theology that refuses to other anyone. At Park Ave, our leadership model is non-hierarchical. And we practice an open pulpit where you will hear a multiplicity of theologically trained voices from different backgrounds and social locations. We don't just preach and talk about deconstructing systems and structures of power. We We practice practice it. Through this podcast, we hope you will be inspired, encouraged, and challenged. Listen Listen with with us now. Park Avenue Baptist Church, in response to COVID-19, has suspended in-person worship, but that can't stop us. What you'll hear on this podcast is a recording of our online worship, which happens each Sunday at 10 a.m. Join us through our Facebook, at Park Ave Baptist, or our Instagram, at Park Ave Baptist. We hope that you stay safe in these difficult times. Then we will have a reading on Brianna. And be reading Mark 1, uh, 14 through 15. Good morning, everyone. I will be reading Mark 1, 14 through 15. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee announcing God's good news, saying, Now is the time. Here comes God's kingdom. Change your hearts and lives and trust this good news, the word of God for the people of God. This time we invite our speaker uh, this morning to come forward. Uh, We ask uh, that we, as Park Ave and those who are listening, that we come with open ears and open heart to receive something life-giving this morning. So Ms. Palmer, we, we welcome you to the stage this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here with you this morning. And thank you so much for uh, for having me here. I'm beyond excited to be talking to you about the theology of abolition, which is where you know, my great joy meets the world's great need. And what I want to, to speak to you about today is Jesus's promises for us about abolition, what Jesus has promised us. And, and speaking particularly about what he's promised us in one one sentence, the first sentence he says in the Gospel of Mark, when he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe in the good news. And you know, these first words that Jesus speaks in Mark's Gospel present a plan, a plan of abolition, a plan of liberation, a plan of jubilee that will characterize the entirety of his ministry, all of his coming life, his death and his resurrection. This is not the usual passage we start with. Christian abolitionists usually focus on a different public announcement of Jesus' ministry. And I can't tell you how many times I and others have talked about our work as grounded in Jesus' proclamation in Luke chapter four, where he stands up and he reads from the prophet Isaiah, as we just heard Kevin sing, that he's come to proclaim freedom to captives, to prisoners, and good news to the poor. 
And that's where we usually start. But this passage, this promise from Mark, an entirely different gospel's expression of the key elements of Jesus' message, an entirely different mission statement is also a profoundly abolitionist text. And so what I hope to explore today with you is the ways that this one verse in Mark answers four questions about abolition for us as the church. When, where, why, and how do we, the church, take part in the work of abolition? Let's start with when. Jesus says first, the time is fulfilled. He says the time is now. And we can place this in the immediate context from the previous verse of the arrest of John the Baptist. Jesus was a friend or a disciple of John's and John's arrest is clearly a trigger for Jesus to return from the wilderness and take up his own ministry. And perhaps it's even more than that because for Jesus' first proclamation of his own ministry to begin with John's arrest also means that the gospel is from the very beginning being proclaimed from solidarity with those who are incarcerated. Jesus is responding to John being imprisoned by putting into action his own ministry by starting up God's plan of liberation. And the promise that Jesus is giving us is certainly one of real, concrete liberation. I've been recently very affected by Andre Trocmé's book, Jesus and the Nonviolent Revolution. And Trocmé was a French Protestant pastor who hid Jews from the Nazis during World War II. His theology, which rose out of his experience of resistance to unjust laws, insists that what Jesus proclaimed was a real, concrete, nonviolent revolution. The real jubilee of God promised by the Torah passages in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, in which land and money would really be redistributed to the poor. And while Trochme doesn't mention abolition, this idea of a nonviolent revolution and his insistence that what Jesus promised was a real and concrete jubilee is also, I think, a promise of abolition. What Jesus is announcing when he says that the time is fulfilled is abolition and jubilee. And the reality of this abolition, of this jubilee, is what brings me to the question of when and to his promise that the time is fulfilled. Because as Trochme says, what Jesus is saying is that now is the time for the jubilee of God, for abolition to be put into practice as it probably never had been before. As the Apostle Paul writes later, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Jesus, by saying the time is fulfilled, is telling us that abolition and jubilee aren't promises for some future utopia. Our goal isn't to hope that maybe someday abolition will be possible in the coming reign of God. Instead, what Jesus is saying is that now is the time for abolition. As, as Christian abolitionist writer Lee Griffith puts it, we can spend the rest of our lives inventing new handcuffs and building new prisons, but that won't change the fact that Jesus proclaims liberty for the captives and the prisons have fallen. Or as Angela Davis says, prisons are obsolete. They are already obsolete. The time is fulfilled. All our work for abolition, all our action in solidarity with those who are incarcerated, all our fights against prisons, every life-affirming and just alternative we build is an attempt to grasp the reality that already exists for us, the reality that Jesus affirmed 2,000 years ago in Galilee, which is that now is the time for the Jubilee of God, and now is the time when God is bringing about abolition. We can't wait.
This is a hard reality to face, and it's especially hard for the millions of those, the members of our own body in Christ who are presently incarcerated or who suffer ongoing violence. God has overcome the prison, but the dark power of the prison is fighting back. So the promise that the time has been fulfilled is not a call to give up the struggle, but instead a call to renew the struggle, to make the world what it should be, to make it in practice the liberated creation that it already is in God's deepest truth. I'm speaking today to us as the church to say that this call to struggle comes with a promise because the promise that Jesus makes in saying that the time is fulfilled is that we are now living with one foot in the eschatological end of history. The church is always on the boundary between this age and the coming reign of God. That's why the church always lives in expectation of apocalypse. And baptism is a sign of this. Our baptisms, our union with Jesus in his death and his resurrection, they are division from the ongoing age of history and resurrection into the coming reign of God. By baptism, we enter ahead of time into the end of time. We are already, as the church, living in the reign of God, living in the eternity outside of time and history. And so the baptismal promise to the church is that even as we live amongst the violence of prisons and policing, we are truly living in a world, in the world to come where the prisons have fallen. And the call of discipleship that follows that baptismal promise is to borrow the language of the Second Vatican Council to ensure that our human lives and social structures are now accommodated by degrees to the highest of all realities, spiritual ones, to what is really real. The struggle of the church, the church as it exists in prisons and outside under oppression and where it participates in oppression is to live the freedom that already exists for us and for the world by God's own action. Abolition is not a promise to come. Abolition and Jubilee are realities we must leave, live out now. Okay, so that's when. That leaves the questions of where, why, and how. Let's go back to the words of Jesus. Jesus' next promise and command is the kingdom of God has come near, or as we might say more inclusively, the reign of God has come near. What does it mean that this reality, God's abolition and jubilee, the great remaking of the world is near us? I wanna offer an illustration, an illustration that comes from one of my favorite science fiction stories, The Man by Ray Bradbury. In this story, a starship captain arrives on a faraway planet, but the people there are not interested in him because a far more important man, a miraculous healer bringing peace has just been there. At first, the captain is skeptical that anything so good could be true. But when he is finally convinced that the coming of the man has been real, he demands to know where he went and how he can catch up with him. Refusing to stay behind in the healed community of peace he has found, he gets back in his spaceship, determined to catch up to the man who has gone on to the next planet. But as one of the bystanders says after the captain leaves, poor man, he's gone. And he'll go on planet after planet, seeking and seeking, and always and always he will be an hour late or a half hour late or 10 minutes late or a minute late. And finally, he will miss out by only a few seconds. And when he has visited 300 worlds and is 70 or 80 years old, he will miss out by only a fraction of a second and then a smaller fraction of a second. And he will go on and on thinking to find that very thing which he left behind here on this planet in this city. If we go looking elsewhere for God's just reign, we are always too late. God is already present among us 
as he is in that healed community of peace left behind by the man. The reality that makes abolition possible in our communities is that the reign of God has come near. That promise is why we do not look up to heaven or beyond the sea for the word of God, but recognize that the word is very near to us. It is in our mouths and in our hearts, as it says in Deuteronomy. We put into practice the presence and peace of God who has come near us when we live out God's justice in our own communities of reconciliation. The hard work of community accountability for harm, of restorative, compassionate accountability, which allows us to imagine a world without prisons, is the work where God becomes present to us here and now. So how do we respond to this nearness? And why must we respond with real struggle for abolition? Jesus answers the why of abolition in his next command, repent. Friends, abolition is repentance. The reality of the demonic intertwining of Christianity and white supremacy and capitalism in our society means that abolition is repentance required of the church for our complicity in such grave sin. The reality of our history is this. The Bible was used to support slavery by claiming a fundamental difference between races as divine punishment for the sin of a mythical forefather of people of African descent. As Rima Vesely-Flad teaches us, Puritan covenant theologies that divided the elect from the reprobate supported the social construction of whiteness, as white Europeans understood themselves to have a covenant with God not shared by indigenous inhabitants of the Americas or Black people they had enslaved. As she says, they saw themselves as covenanted children as opposed to mere creatures. Harmful constructions of penal substitutionary atonement have been used to justify harsh punish punishment in this life because of the punishment required by God, supposedly, for our sins. And this has occurred in racialized ways that scapegoat black people in particular, black and brown people in particular, as Nakia Smith-Robert has laid out powerfully in her own academic work. Solitary confinement was invented by Christians, intending reform, who perverted the idea of penitence into the forced punitive silence of the penitentiary. And as our own Micah Herskind has written, prison ministry thrives on a condescending approach to incarcerated people that sees them as sinners in need of conversion rather than recognizing the structural realities underlying mass incarceration. And the church's insistence on the doctrine of hell replicates the dynamics of the prison. The church relies on hell to promote its missionary work and reproduce itself, just as our society of racial capitalism relies on imprisonment to produce the inequalities that drive it. Friends, we are all complicit in the ways Christianity has been used to lock up, torture, and kill our beloved siblings in the human family. Jesus' command in response to this grave sin is a command to us, repent. Abolition is repentance. Ultimately, the question why abolish for Christians is not reducible to a belief in human rights or civil rights or God-given human dignity to progressive values or a desire to be on the right side of history. But the, the decision to abolish is at its heart repentance, the turning and returning of our entire beings, body and soul, material, systemic and structural realities to God. Ruth Wilson Gilmore talks about the need to turn away from reliance on death dealing institutions and instead to build life affirming alternatives. This turning is the essence of repentance. 
Christian repentance is not about sadness or about guilt. Friends, abolition is repentance, but it is profoundly good news. And so I want to turn at last to Jesus' final command in this verse, which is also a promise. Believe in the good news. Trust in the good news. Of course, abolition is good news. Abolition is good news for everyone who is incarcerated. It's good news for everyone who's ever loved someone incarcerated. It's good news for everyone who's ever been harmed by a cop, been afraid of a cop, been made to feel like an outsider in their own neighborhood or community by so-called community policing. And abolition is also good news for those who have been harmed in acts of violence because abolition is about overcoming the structures of shame, oppression, and inequality that support violence and about replacing inconsistent state punishment with real accountability, the kind of community accountability that empowers those who have been harmed to demand the reparations that are due to them, whether that harm came at the hands of an individual or the hands of the state. But Jesus' command to believe in the good news isn't just a claim that abolition is good news. It is also an instruction about how we do abolition. Because ultimately, the practice of abolition requires faith. Not faith in the Christian sense of belief in Jesus because we know many abolitionists are not Christians, nor need they be. But faith in the sense of total commitment to the liberation of all. Paul Tillich described faith as ultimate concern, the thing that concerns us and our very being most closely, whatever is prior to all our other commitments and determines them. For us as Christians, God as revealed in Jesus is our ultimate concern. And understanding the nature of that ultimate concern comes in part through making the work that expresses God's character, Jesus's work of abolition and jubilee, our primary ethical commitment. We will not let anything get in the way of liberation for all, not because of our own strength, but because we trust entirely in God and God is made present, visible and known to us in that liberation. Abolition requires faith because it requires imagination. Ruth Wilson Gilmore rightly insists on the need for us all to have a better moral imagination, to build abolitionist alternatives. For us as Christians to believe in the good news means to have the courage to imagine a world without prisons and to build the structures that will get us there. Do not quench the spirit. Friends, our belief in the good news strengthens us in the face of the long, hard road to abolition. Though the powers arrayed against us are mighty, God will prevail. We draw on that faith, we draw on that good news to imagine courageous resistance. The good news inoculates us against passive acceptance of the status quo. Because the current status quo, the status quo of prisons, of policing, of state violence and death, it cannot stand and it will not stand. God is bringing about abolition. God is bringing about abolition. And thanks be to God, we are able to participate in God's work. And Jesus tells us that this promise of abolition is for us, for us now, for us here in our own communities. And it comes to us with the grace of repentance and the grace of faith. Friends, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in this very, very good news. Mm -hmm.
Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to worship with us in person, our services are on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m.-ish. We are at 486 Park Ave in Southeast Atlanta, across the street from Grant Park, at the corner of Park Ave and Sydney Street. To find out more about us or get in touch, visit our website at parkavebaptist.com. Now go into a world that is too often unjust, knowing that the God that created you loves you and empowers you to love boldly, live inclusively, and serve creatively.